Amen. Amen. Praise God. And welcome to Harvest. And whether this is your first time here or whether you've been here for a while, you are family. And uh, we're so glad that you're here, whether you're in person or online. My name is Dan Hammer. I have the privilege of being the senior pastor here. And I love the truth that we just sang, the reality that we can praise the Lord in every season and in every situation of life. And um, God is at work in a big way. And so I know that there are lots of situations, lots of seasons. We're going to look at that today in the Word. But every day is an opportunity, and we have a reason to praise the Lord our God. So thank you for that. Thank you, worship team, for how you're working. Thank you for the faithfulness of each and every one of you in this church. And um, I'm just blown away by the reality of what God is, is doing. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 26 and 28. You heard that right. We're going to save 27 for a couple weeks from now. But we're going to look at 1 Samuel 26 and 28 today as we continue our series um, called The Heart of the Matter. And um, as we dive in, I'm just so thankful for the work that God is doing here at Harvest. Amen. And I'm so thankful that, you know, our, our, our mission is to glorify God for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Our vision here is one mission, one church, one family. And I've just seen that on display the last couple of days in, in, in highs and in lows. Um, God is at work and, and he's at work in ways that others are noticing too. We had a, a real beautiful um, service yesterday for Sweet Donna Ann here, um, Reeves. And um, there was a je- local gentleman, a local restaurateur who, who donated some catering for that. And on the way out, he just looked at me and said, Dan, I just want you to know you have great people in this church. I said, I know. <laughs> Praise God for that. And uh, we, God has, been, has blessed us um, with amazing people. Um, and so super thankful for that. And so as God continues to build his church, here are some, a couple of exciting updates. One is this. Pray for uh, Nate and Stephanie Pine, who are joining our staff. And so literally right this moment, Nate is helping him to lead his final worship service in Indianapolis, Indiana at their GCC church there. Um, they are getting in a with their two dogs and their son. They're getting in a U-Haul and driving cross country tomorrow. They'll be here tomorrow night. And so if you're free around six o'clock in the Severn area, we're going to help them. Uh, some people are, um, Ann and I will be out of town, help them unload um, just for the night. Uh, so if you're free around six in the Severn area, let me know and we'll get you the information there. They would love a couple hands to help do that. They're going to spend the night here, and then they're going to spend the rest of the week visiting family up and down the East Coast. They'll worship with us probably next Sunday. He won't be leading worship, but he will be leading worship on the 21st. So pray for that transition. Obviously, it's heavy to leave a home, uh, leave where you've been for about a dozen years, and where God is, uh, they're excited, they're thrilled to be here. Um, but uh, just, it's it's not easy. And so just be praying for them. And another exciting way that God is building his church here is our heart at harvest is to anchor in God's word, right? We want to learn it, and then we want to apply it. And so when we, in every aspect of our lives, and so one of the big ways that we do that, one of the most important ways that we do that, there's not a not important way, but um, but one of the ways is that we want to set up God's church, how Jesus is building it. Jesus is the architect. He's the designer. He's the sustainer of his church. And we see throughout scripture, and I know different churches handle this differently, and that's totally okay. Um, but our heart here at Harvest is that we want to follow what we see in Scripture to, as much as humanly possible, is we see that, that Jesus sets up his government for his church, the leadership structure of his church, to be led by a plurality, which means more than one, of elders. And so that is how God has set up his church here at Harvest, and then it's a season where it's time to appoint some new elders as we head into 2023. And so on the back, what you'll see on the usher table in the back behind is what we're calling an elder nomination form that on one side has places for you to write 
one to four names of, of men that you would like to nominate to, to be recommend, to, to be considered uh, for the position of, of leadership of elder here at Harvest. On the back, you'll see all the listing of elder qualification with their scripture passages from 1 Timothy 3, from Titus 1, uh, from 1 Peter 5, from Acts chapter 20, from scripture. We're not making this up. We want to take God's truth. We want to pull it out. And we want to apply it to our lives. And so the process here is like this. And so currently, it's, a, it's an older board of myself and Ted Dressel and Austin Jewell, and I'm so thankful for them, and I'm thankful for the men that have preceded them, that have given of their hearts and lives to serve and under-shepherd God's church here. But we're, we need your help. And so what I, my charge, our charge to you on behalf of the elder board is to read through and prayerfully consider these qualifications biblically that are on the back. And as God puts men on your heart that you see, not just like, oh, some random name of a guy, but this is really serious. This is significant uh, that you believe that might meet those qualifications to write their name down. You can write one, you can write two, three, four, you can make it, um, you can put your name on it. You can be anonymous, however you want to do it and either give it to me or turn it in on the offering bo- box on the back table or send me an email with your names uh, over the next month by Sunday, September the 4th. And then the current elders will take all those names, pray over them, process them, and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to lead us to the men that we want to invite into the interview and evaluation phase. Because not every man that's nominated will go into that phase, but for different reasons. Um, But then we will follow up with those men, invite them in. If they say yes, we will go through a very thorough and extensive examination process because this is a big deal. And over the next coming months, with the goal of, by the end of that, some, uh, some might enter, all might not exit, right? Um, and so we're going to pray that God would reveal his men in that time. And that, uh, with the goal of early 2023, adding one to three or however many God would new lay elders um, to or new elders to come alongside our current team, as there will be some guys rotating off for different reasons for that. And so would you pray with us for this? This is a very, very significant thing in the life of God's church. This is a very healthy thing. Again, we want to live biblically. What we see in uh, Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 14 is current elders appointing new elders. Um, so we want to take those principles. And again, I understand that different churches do it differently, and that's totally okay. But here's what we, we really want to see what, what God has in Scripture. We want to pull it out as best possible, and we want to apply it directly. So would you, uh, would you really participate in that? We really want and need your participation. So I have a, I have a confession to make. Um, I was a, and, and hopefully I'm not, you're not going to leave me hanging here. Um, I was afraid of the dark as a kid. Anybody else afraid of the dark as a kid? Right? Yeah, I remember one incident specifically where I would, you know, I was trying to go to sleep and I literally had to sleep, sleep with the door open and cracked because if it was pitch black, I was not sleeping. Um, and I thought I saw an intruder. Okay, and so what did I do? I made a beeline for my parents, uh, my parents' room, and I spent the night on their floor. And it would—the National Guard could not have taken me out of that room. They, no, I was not. I, I needed to be in the presence of my parents, in the presence of my father, because in the face of what I thought was fearful, I needed the, my dad to take care of it. I needed to rely on my dad because it was only in the presence of my earthly father that I was able to relax enough to rest to actually be able to sleep. In the same reality, when we think spiritually, when we face things in this life that we find fearful or that produce anxiety or that we don't have answers for, the same way we need to run to our eternal father, right, to find the rest, to find the hope, to find the security, to find the strength in order to be able to finally continue on in our daily lives. But we don't always do that, do we? In the text today, we're going to see David and Saul. We're going to we're continuing our verse by verse, chapter by chapter study of the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in it through its completion in a couple weeks. 
We're going to see David and Saul each literally, the text is going to say literally, seeing trouble. But they're going to react very differently. One's going to turn to God and one's going to turn away from God. One experiences deliverance, the other one experiences destruction. Guess which one is which, right? The one who turns to God is the one who experiences deliverance. And sometimes deliverance isn't necessarily the external circumstance going away, but it's at the inner core of our hearts and experiencing the, the peace and the deliverance from anxiety, worry, the hope, experiencing hope, experiencing joy. And the one who turns away from God is going to experience destruction. The same thing is true for you and I today. The reality is that this morning, every single one of us most likely has some type of storm that we're walking into. Some type of trial that we're currently experiencing. Some cloudy tribulation that is brewing on the horizon and we might be able to see it right now and we might not, or maybe we don't, but come Tuesday morning when you get that call or you walk into the office or something goes wrong or the doctor gives you the news that you don't want to hear, it's on you. And the question is in those moments of life, Because you're either in a storm coming out of one or about to head into one, right? Because the reality is we live in a fallen and broken world. It's not what storm are you necessarily walking through because the details are different for all of us. And some are more significant than others. But they all exist. But the bigger question is in the presence of the storm, who or what are you looking to and turning to? Because that will make all the difference for you, right? We're going to see that in the text. In the storms of our life, the decision that you make of who to look to and turn to will either provide deliverance or destruction. Friends, in our hurt, Jesus is always our hope. In our brokenness, Jesus is always our steadfastness. When life is shaking, it is only in and through Jesus that we can still be standing, even if our knees are quivering. Where are you looking today? The big idea, you'll see it on your notes, you'll see it on the screen right now, is this. In times of trouble, turning to God always provides me deliverance through God. In times of trouble, and we all face them of different sizes and scopes, turning to God always provides me deliverance through God. Trust me, it doesn't always mean that the illness gets better. It doesn't always mean that the job is provided. It doesn't always mean fill in the blank with the desire of your heart that you're waiting on this morning or the grief that you're processing because it's not there. But it means that God is good, even when life isn't. And it means that God's word holds true and that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, can and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we give our desires, our requests, our yearnings, our struggles, our pain. As we lay them down at the foot of Jesus, he will cover us with his grace that is always sufficient and his mercy, which is always enough. I don't know the details. I just know you're walking through it right now. And I just pray that you would turn to God in it. Because in and through that, there's deliverance. I pray that today is a turning point for you. Wherever the focus of your heart is, and again, God's after your heart. 
I pray that you would turn to God and find deliverance in him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for the beautiful reality of of the necessity for the gospel. God, when life is shaking and when my heart is quaking, God, you're still standing. You're standing firm. You're loving. You're caring. You're reaching out. You're providing everything that I need. God, you have never left us. You have never forsaken us. You have never failed us and you haven't before and you're not gonna start today. We are here today to declare our dependency on you and I pray that you would open our hearts to see you today. That you would turn our hearts and our minds to look to you in every situation, in the highs and in the lows, in the mountaintops and in the valleys. God, we are here to declare the reality that we need you and we ask that you would glorify yourself in ways that we don't, always understand and or even like in our human flesh. God, in our grief, glorify yourself. In our mess, make yourself known. When times are hard, help us to hope in you. You are the anchor for our soul in the storms of life. And Father, in these next few moments, open our hearts and open your word and Holy Spirit, just speak silence to me. And God, may your words flow. We need you this morning, God. We desperately need you. And I, I trust that we're going to find you as we seek you with all of our hearts, God. Because that's what your word says. Remove those parts of our hearts where we are not seeking you. Remove those situations. Allow us to turn to you in those situations where we have yet to seek you or have forsaken you. Let us hold nothing back from you as we find that in you, we have all that we need through you. God, we love you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Today, as you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26, we're, we're coming off a chapter last week in 25 where David had this adventure with Nabal. And he had this encounter where God used it, where he had in his flesh wanted to respond in a very heinous, sinful way. He wanted to wipe out Nabal because he did not get an invite to the party. God used a faithful woman, Abigail, to stand in the gap, to redirect the gaze of David to his glorious Savior above and beyond the current situation. And now we find David in chapter 26 on the run again from Saul. We find him in the hill country. Chapter 26 says this. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakali, which is on the east of Jeshimon? And so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakali, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshem. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. And then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay. With Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So let's pause here for a second. David's in the hill country. He's hiding. He's running, and and he has 600 men with him. 
Pastor Andrews likes to refer to them as his band of misfit mercenaries. Pass, uh, and, and what we're going to see, though, is Saul brought 3,000 men to hunt David. It's a manhunt. He wants to kill David. He's threatened by David. He brought the literal National Guard with him. But obviously, David's band of misfit mercenaries are better soldiers than Saul's because they find Saul's camp very easily. 3,000 troops do not travel lightly. And in verse 5, David rose and he saw the place where Saul had laid. He sees his trouble. He sees the man that is out to get him. He sees 3,000 men whose sole objective is to kill him. Now, is that anxiety producing? You're outgunned five to one. And you know their mission is to kill you. Like, there's, there's little doubt about that. There's no doubt. Is that fear producing? Yes. Is that troubling? Yes. So in my time of trouble, what do I do? We're going to see two life-altering realities from this text in 26 and 28. The first is this. First life-altering reality of in my trouble, turning to God in surrender leads to deliverance. Turning to God in surrender leads to my deliverance. That's a life-altering reality. It's life-altering because I'm taking the choice to take my eyes off of my trouble, off of my enemy, off of my adversary, off of my adversity, whether it's a situation, a person, a thing, a shortcoming, and I'm turning them on to my Savior, and that will change everything for you. It's a choice you have to make over and over and over again, not just once, but again, and then tomorrow. And then Wednesday, and then Friday. With the adversity that you're facing today, where are your, where's your focus? Who are you turning to? Watch what David does. In verse 6, David sees Saul, who is seeking to kill him with 3,000 men. And he asked for a volunteer, verse 6. And David said to Abimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, and the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp with to Saul. And Abisha said, I will go down with you. Now, Abisha is David's nephew. Zeruiah is David's sister. So we're going to look throughout the rest of chapter 26 at five biblical principles that empower us to persevere in times of trouble. Because I know that some of you, your times of trouble are maybe short-lived. What you're walking through right now may not seem like a big deal to you. And maybe it's recent. I don't know. But there are others of us in this room that for a medium length of time or maybe for an extended period of time, you've been walking through a trial. Weeks that won't end. Months that won't give way. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's one thing after another. Maybe it's a financial struggle. Maybe it's a, a fledgling marriage. Maybe it's a prodigal child. I don't know what it is. But you're like, God, when is this going to stop? God, when are you going to intervene? God, when are you going to work? David's been on the run for years by this point. He understands the reality of having someone literally out to get him over an extended period of time. And through that, there needs to come an endurance and a perseverance to continue to look to God. Because I might be good for the first six months, but come month seven, I'm done, right? I'm ready to tap out. I'm over it, and my flesh begins to become to the forefront. God, I'm tired of waiting. God, I'm tired of grieving. God, I'm tired of unanswered prayer. God, God, where are you? Or why are you? And we experience this silence. 
that can be devastating. We need perseverance to persevere and to continue to turn to God. So these are biblical principles that you can apply to your practical reality of the trial and the trouble that you're in, about to go through, or coming out of. The first is this. Don't walk alone. David's like, I see my adversity. I see my adversary. And he's like, who's going to go with me? David knew not to walk alone for a variety of reasons. We need biblical community for accountability. Trust me, David. David's coming off an incident where he, he knew that he was an angry man, right? He was going to go and take out the entire male population of a family because a guy didn't give him an invite to a dinner party. He knew his susceptibility. I need help. I need someone to encourage me. I need someone to, to walk with me, to help, to cover my six, to watch my back. And it's also an amazing discipling opportunity, right? We're about discipleship. What an opportunity to grab your nephew, your family member, your coworker, your friend on your hip and say, let's go watch God work. And let's talk along the way. In the trial that you're in right now, are you walking alone? Or are you inviting others to partner with you and walk with you? And this can be a scary thing to open up that vulnerability, the reality of your depravity. To go, my relationship actually isn't that great with this person. Actually, I have more financial struggles than I want to admit. Actually, I put up a good front that the illness of my family member is not bothering me, but honestly, on the inside, it's destroying me right now. And I need prayer. I need help. I can't do this alone. Where do you need to admit to the reality that you can't live this life alone right now? Where do you need to invite others in? And so David takes his nephew and he goes. And by the way, that takes a heart posture of humility. In verse 7, he, he, he takes his nephew and, and David and Abashi, they went to the army by night and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner, the army, lay around him. And then, and then said Abashi to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. He's like, it only take me one shot to kill him, David. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come, or he will go down into battle and perish. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Now, I don't know about you, but Saul had 3,000 men all literally circled around him. And somehow David and Abishai slither their way into camp while they're all sleeping and get right next to Saul to see the spear right next to his head in the water jug. These 3,000 men were not probably the best soldiers around. I'm so thankful that you guys are the ones that defend our country, so many of you, and not these guys. Because they they're either sleeping on the job or they're whatever, but they're bad at it. Because David and his nephew get right up to Saul and they could easily kill him. David's calm into the crisis because his focus is on God in the crisis. Which leads us to the second principle that gives us the empower, that God uses to empower us to persevere in times of trouble. It's this, be led by the Holy Spirit and not by circumstances. Again, we saw it again a couple chapters ago. The circumstances look like I could kill Saul right now. This guy that is literally out to get me. Everybody else is sleeping. Here I am. I can even kill him with his own weapon. 
it would only take one shot. And we can probably get out of camp before anybody else knows because they're all sleeping or not great at their jobs anyway. The circumstances is presenting itself. But David goes, no, just because the circumstances looks like it's from God, God's word says otherwise. We are not called in following the Lord to make surface level decisions. We are called to lead, by the Lord to, to make spirit-led decisions. You can't just evaluate your circumstances and go, obviously this is from God. We need to ask God. We need to submit our hearts to the leadership of God, the Holy Spirit. We need to surrender our lives to the leadership of God's word. We need to prioritize God's way over what might seem to be the easy way or the quick way. As we said last week, a couple of weeks ago, well-meaning people can encourage us to partake of circumstances that are not of God. The Holy Spirit's role is to guide you and to lead you into all truth, to point you to Jesus. Are you asking him right now in your difficulties of life? Are you clinging to him? Because again, God's number one goal is not your happiness, but it's your holiness. God wants to grow you in maturity, and sometimes that means sitting in difficult circumstances. That's why James 1 is very real. God, I consider it pure joy, my brothers, when I walk through trials of all size so that I can endure under, so that God can work his maturation process and make me perfect. So if your prayer is spiritual maturation, if your prayer is to become more like God, if your prayer is to become more like Jesus, which many of us say it is, and our prayer is to be a living testimony to those around us, what if the trial you're walking through is a mechanism and the means that God is using to actually answer your prayer? Because there are some lessons that we can only learn about God that we can only learn in the storm. There are some things about the character of God that we only discover in the crisis. And it is through that maturation process. Like, you guys are military folks. If somebody off the street said, hey, I want to go be a Navy SEAL tomorrow, you'd be like, you got to go through boot camp, you got to go through buds. Are those pleasant experiences? No, but what happens? There's a refinement that you can't get to here without going through here. We want the product without the process. You can't have the product of spiritual maturity without the process of sanctification. We need to trust God that he is at work, that Romans 8.28 is real, that his best for us is on display in every trial, in every tribulation, when we come face to face with every enemy that we have. And we need to be led by the Holy, because sometimes we want to get out. We miss out on the work God wants to do in us because we want to circumnavigate the mechanism of spiritual maturity that God has for us. We want to, our focus is get out from the trial and we miss out on the work God has designed to do in us. And we're the ones that miss out. God gives us his strength to endure. Will you trust him in that? That's exactly what David is discipling his nephew right here. And David said, verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Because that leads to the third principle. We need to follow God's word over man's word. The Holy Spirit is an essential component in living wise lives because the Holy Spirit takes our biblical knowledge, our information, and gives us street-level transformation of what to do in this situation. Because two things might be biblically accurate. Two, option A and option B might line up with scripture. The Holy Spirit's like, God wants you to do option B right here and not option A. And we need to follow that leadership. But here we have well-meaning nephew that is saying, David, let me take him out. 
Obviously, God has provided this opportunity. And David's like, no, God's word trumps man's word every single time, even well-meaning men. Yes, scripture says seek biblical counsel, and you should. But what happens when well-meaning biblical counselors give you differing opinions? Biblically based opinions. Should I stay? Should I go? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Should I do this or do that? You have to divert back to the personal leadership in your own heart and soul of the Holy Spirit. Well-meaning nephew says, David, come on. David says, no, I'm going to point you to God's word. Because God's word says, don't do this, even as appetizing and as easy as it looks right now. Where in your life are you following the words of man? Because it tickles your, your mind. I can get out of this trial. I can get under this, out from under this persecution. If I just compromise here a little bit. Who really cares in the long run? He had it coming in. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. God's word must anchor us every time. What are you prioritizing in your life? Out of a heart of worship, we must live with a life of obedience. We must walk in lives of obedience. I mean, that's what David says here twice in verse 9. And in verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David knew God's word enough, and then he chose to apply it. So first we have to learn it, then we have to, we have to, we have to desire it, we have to learn it, and then we have to apply it. And we have to seek the Holy Spirit in it and through it for all. Because friends, I want you to know this. Jesus says this, if you love me, he says this right before he goes to the cross, to his disciples who had followed him for three years, the night Hours before he goes to the cross, he says, guys, we've been together for three years. We've had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. We've seen a lot of things. You see me do miracles. You see me do all this stuff, but it isn't just for a show. It isn't just to have the warm and fuzzies. If you love me, you will do what? Obey my commands in every circumstance, in every trial, in every, so above your personal feelings, above your emotions, you will choose to obey me because you choose to trust me and out of a heart that loves me and desires to worship me above all. And that truth applies right here, right now in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in your life. If you love Jesus in this moment, as hard as it might be on the surface level, will you choose to obey his commands? Not just some of them, but every single one of them. That's the biblical principle that gives you the strength, that gives you the empowerment. Because the strength doesn't come from you to persevere in the trial. Because our flesh wants to go. Our flesh doesn't like pain. But in this, it's a supernatural strength that comes from the unleashing of the Holy Spirit that comes through surrender to the word of God and submission to the heart of God. Will you do that today? Where in your life do you need to do that? To realign your heart. Because the fourth biblical principle is this. That empowers me to persevere in times of trouble. Is I cling to the character of God for confidence in the crisis. I cling to God's character for confidence in the crisis. We see that vividly in verse 10. And David said, as the Lord lives, my God's alive. He's not dead, right? And he reigns, which means he's in charge, which means he's over all. As my Lord lives, the Lord strike him. The Lord will strike him or his day will come to die. Like he'll die of old age or a heart attack. Or he will go down into battle and perish. He's like, I don't know how God's going to kill Saul. I just know God's going to kill Saul. I don't know when God's going to take Saul out. I just know he is. So I'm trusting it into the Lord's hands. It might be a day. It might be a year. It might be a decade. It's not for me to decide. 
I'm going to trust the character of God that says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'm going to control what I need to control, which is my own heart. And I'm going to choose to follow God. And I'm going to trust God with the rest, as hard as that is. And that's hard, isn't it, friends? It's hard. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is spiritual warfare. Killing of myself so that I can follow my Savior. It is painful. It is anti-cultural. It is against my fleshly nature. But it is what we must, not not a choice, we must choose as Christ followers. And I must cling to the character of God in the crisis. Like you watch one of those weatherman shows in the hurricane and they're like, Gripping the light bulb. Ah, I'm getting blown away. Like we need to drop anchor and hold on because the storm is real. It's heavy. It's hard. It's painful. It takes a pound, if not several of our flesh. It leaves wounds, but Jesus is enough. And his word is sufficient. And we must anchor in that. And the key to that is this, that David disciples his nephew, that he will trust the Lord to be the judge. And the way that we have perseverance in the trial, perseverance in the problem, is when we shift our focus off of the how. I don't know how Saul is going to die. I'm going to trust him. And put it on the who. Rearrange the letters of WHO from how to who. And your anxiety will begin to dissipate. I don't, because so many of us are, I got to figure out a way to take out Saul. That's anxiety. How am I going to, like, you feel the temperature rising? I got to figure out a way to pay the bill. I got to figure out a way to get healthy. I got to fit. Yes. And sometimes we have choices to make, but more than that, we need to shift our focus to the who my God said it. My God can do it. And my God will do it. God, I'm going to trust you with it. And I surrender it. And I'm going to walk in obedience. So today, what areas of your life in the trial and the storm, do you need to shift your focus and your perspective from focusing on the how to focusing on the who? Cause that is life giving and that is free and that's victory. Our times of trouble leads us to hearts that are raging, but as we cling to God's character, we continue to rest. What happens next here, we're not going to read every verse by verse for, for time's sake, but basically David takes this, David and his nephew take the jar and they take the, the spear and they walk a distance away from the camp and they go, they basically call out to the camp, hey, you guys, they wake the camp up. Abner, the commander, wakes up and he goes out and David's like, hey, by the way, slacker, you've been slacking on your job. You should be dead right now because you failed. This is Dan's version, okay? Um, and then Saul, and then Saul, here, Saul hears, every, hey, is that the voice of David? And Saul comes out, and David and Saul have another back and forth. And basically, so, again, David, for the second time in a couple of chapters, Saul, why are you trying to kill me? It makes no sense. What have I done to you? And eventually Saul goes, you know right, David? You're right. And David's like, you have driven me out of the land that God gave to me and my family. You have wanting me to serve other gods, both of which under the Mosaic law are capital offenses that Saul is committing. And look at this interchange beginning in verse 21 of chapter 26. So now you have David and his nephew a distance away, but having this dialogue with Abner, the commander, and now with Saul. And then verse 21, Saul responds to David and he says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes that day. Because David's like, I have this and I have that. It's like show and tell for David. I have your spear. I could have killed you, but I didn't. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And he's referring to chasing David down and trying to kill him. And David answered and he said, here is a spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hands today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I resisted that temptation. 
Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all the tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And so David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. If you have a pen, a highlighter, I would highlight and underline verse 24. Look at David's heart right here. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, David considered the life of his adversary precious. That's what it means to love God and love others. No matter what they're doing against you, it's a heart that chooses to see others as God chooses to see them, as ones worthy of love and care. And then look what happens. So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all the tribulation. Does David go, because I, you are precious to me, you, I need to be precious to you? No, he, he leaves Saul out of it. He entrusts his future protection and care to Jesus Christ, to God. Not to Saul, because he knows Saul can't be trusted. He's not trying to trust Saul. Saul's that's done. He goes, I will trust and I will look to in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me. So as David turns to God, he makes the decision. He experiences deliverance from God because Saul goes away. The threat is done for the moment. Saul decides to stop chasing him. God delivers him from this trial because David turned to God and put his trust and hope and faith in God. There is little deliverance, verse 24. And that same truth and reality and that same process is alive and well for you today in whatever trial you're facing. It might not be Saul. It might very well be something else. Looking to Christ in the storm always provides me confidence in the storm. Saul has a little bit of a softening of a heart. We're going to see it doesn't last. He's like, I've made a mistake. I have sinned. It's a surface level confession more in a second, not a soul level confession. David, David teaches us himself about where to look in our storms. We read this, Pastor Andrew read this yesterday. In part of, here's part of Psalm 121. David says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Isn't that amazing? Where are you looking? Where does my help come from? I will lift my eyes up to the hills, to heaven, to God. My help comes from, G, from God. He's my deliverer. And he's done it before. He created the heaven and the earth. And if you think that, you know, God created the heaven and the earth. He is sovereign over your situation. He can move the hearts of men. He can provide the finances that you need. He might not choose to do it because you need to trust him that, it's best, that he knows what's best for you. See, so he, our God is the creator. He's the sustainer. He will not let your foot slip. He will not let your foot slip. As slippery as the situation that you're walking through, as grievous air, God will uphold you in all of them. He who keeps you will not slumber. Our, our God does not take a vacation. He does not take a lunch break. He does not sleep at night. He looks at you. He sees you. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He holds you and he knits you together and he's here to take your ashes and make them his beauty. As you cry, he takes your tears and puts them in his bottle because you care. he cares that much about you and he knows you. We have a Savior that is familiar with grief and sorrow and paid a price for you. You're not alone, friends. And God gives David this beautiful kiss, in my opinion, verse 25. Verse 25 is the last words that David and Saul will ever interchange on earth. And Saul, the last words of Saul to David are, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. Isn't that awesome? That's true. David's going to have some downturns too. 
But what a kiss from God to hear that from a king, a father, father figure, former father-in-law. Our God is gracious. He is, he is a good, good God and very, very gracious to us, even in times of trouble. And if God can turn the heart of Saul in this moment, he can turn the heart of those that are opposing you in that moment too, if he chooses and wills. The fifth and final principle to empower us to persevere in the trial is this. Surrender is a heart posture that unleashes God's power. We see that all throughout this chapter. David is surrendering. Surrendering is relinquishing my, my resistance to God and proclaiming in a very real heart level way my dependence on God. It's relinquishing my resistance to turn over those areas of my life which are very, very personal to me or difficult. And it's, with a, it's a confidence that places my dependence on God. David, in this chapter, we've seen David surrender the trial, the circumstance. No, I will not kill him. I'm going to trust that God will take him out. Verse 10. He surrendered the outcome. What situations of your life do you need to surrender the outcome to? I don't know where God's going to do it. I just know he's going to do it. Where are you trying to control the outcome? Because you need to surrender control, friends. You need to surrender control. And by the way, we all struggle with that. Every single one of them. David surrendered his fear. He surrendered his location. He left his home. He surrendered his family. He left his first wife on the run, Michael, Saul's daughter, who Saul then took away and gave him to another guy. He laid it down and said, God, you're going to have to do this. I don't know. I don't really want to. He's, he's on the run. He's living in caves. He surrendered his comfort. He trusted God with all of it. What do you need to trust God with and surrender to God today? He, and then verse 24, it just it, it crescendos into God. I'm going to trust you to deliver me. He, he surrenders his life, his future, his well-being to God. That you will deliver me out of not just this tribulation, but all tribulations. Verse 24. Where do you need to do that today? Surrender your family. He surrenders self-glory, right? Imagine if he took out Saul, what kind of street cred he would get, right? They're already singing his name in chants. It's the second verse. David killed 10,000 and he killed Saul who outnumbered him five to one, 3,000, but that's no compare. Like we need to surrender our desire for self-glory. Surrender the shortcut. God is all about your sanctification, but he does not use a microwave. He uses a crock pot. God is at work. Surrender happens when we realize our need for dependency when we declare our own insufficiency, but we choose to rely on God's sufficiency. When I finally get to the end of me and I realize that it is only in Jesus and through me, and Jesus becomes not just a religious duty, but a relational delight and a desire. How am I empowered to live through the trial? Paul teaches us this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Previous to what we're about to read on the screen, Paul said three, he said, God has given me a thorn in my flesh. He never tells us what that thorn is. And three times I've pleaded with him to take it away. Three times, God, I've planted churches. I've been beaten up. I've been left for dead. I give you my life. God, could you just take this one thorn away? Couldn't you do that for me, God? And God says, no. 
And then Paul's response is, but he, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, but he, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Jesus may rest upon me. And here's really key, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I turn my eyes and my heart to go, my priority is the sake of Jesus and the fame of Jesus. And then come what may, keep me alive, great. Kill me, great. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Take away, give to live is Christ, to die is gain. When my heart has an eternal focus, when I turn the gaze of my eyes and my heart and my mind to Jesus, that changes our perspective. And it realizes only when we're weak. And this is so countercultural to military and life right now. Only when we admit that we can't do it do we actually become strong. And we actually begin to understand the sufficiency of God's grace. God's power for you is only made perfect, is only maximized in your what? This text says weakness. Weakness. And not get through it. I'm going to work hard. No, I can't do it. That's surrender. I can't do it. Where do you need to surrender right now? And you need to trust. God doesn't always answer your why. We live in a fallen brook. Why is this happening to me? He never answered Job, did he? Because I'm God and you're not. I will not choose to answer you right now. You need to trust. I can't always explain the why. And that kills me. It kills me. So I must cling to the who. Because I trust the character of my God. And I surrender my desire for control and my white picket fence and my 2.4 kids and my six figures in the bank account, yada, 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 to a desire that says, for the sake of Christ, I will endure. For the sake of Christ, I will persevere. For the sake of Christ, not for the sake of Dan. That's a big change right there. Moving from for the sake of me, myself, to my Savior. Catch that in that text in 2 Corinthians 12. When your desire shifts, when you turn the desire of your heart from yourself to your Savior, then you begin to experience this strength and the circumstances that surround you no longer have the hold on you that they once did because they can't take Jesus away from you. In times of trouble, turning to God provides me deliverance through God. The second life-altering reality that we need to experience today is that in my trouble, turning away from God in rebellion leads to destruction. Turn with me, if you would, to chapter 28 as we do a quick study on the life of Saul. We'll hit 27 in a couple of weeks. Beginning in verse 3, we see this of chapter 28. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put mediums and ne- neocromancers out of the land. So verse 3 is basically, a, you know, a, you ever watch a TV show in the first 30 seconds? They're like, in previous episodes, dot, dot, dot. That's what's happening right here. They're like, so Saul had already, they're setting the tone for you. Samuel's dead. So Saul is without a, a prophet, someone to communicate God's word to him. He's without a spiritual advisor. And Saul had done a very, very good thing and taken the mediums and necromancers and kicked them out of the land because that was a, against the word of God, the will of God, people that really try to bring up the, those folks from the dead and, and deal in spiritual things that are not of God. 
That was a very good thing that he did. And then we turn to verse four. The Philistines assembled and they they came and they encamped. So this is like a time jump. So now beginning of verse four, chronologically, this is happening after chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. So we're gonna look at 27 and 29 in two weeks. We have a guest preacher next week. Um, Super excited about that. But right now we're now taking a time jump to the beginning of the end where the Philistines, the, the adversary primarily of the Israelites are encamped around Saul. Saul gathered all of Israel, verse four, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw, again, he sees the enemy. When he sees the army of the Philistines, what does the text say in verse five? He was what? Afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And Saul inquired of the Lord. The Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servant, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. So what's happening here is a very significant thing. In 26.5, David sees his enemy in Saul. And and in 28.5, Saul sees his enemy in the Philistines. So 26 verse 5, David sees his enemy. And in 28 5, Saul sees his enemy. One turns to God, the other turns away from God. In this moment, Saul sees his livelihood on the line. He sees his reputation on the line. He sees his, his, his family on the line. Friends, when you come face to face with your fears, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? And where are you turning? I don't know what your crisis is today. David had his and Saul had his. Maybe your crisis is a searing pain of a loss of some kind. Maybe it's a prodigal child that just won't come home. A struggling marriage or a dashed dream. The uncertainty of the future. The ailing health of a parent the unfaithfulness of a spouse, a besetting sin that just keeps gnawing at you and won't go away and you can't seem to master, an unwanted physical move, either staying or going, broken relationships, unmet expectations, deep heart yearnings you're still waiting for but have yet to be fulfilled, or many, many other things. David and Saul get you because they both came face to face with a crisis in fear. One turned to God, one turned away from God. Where are you looking? Now you might be going, Pastor Dan, I thought, they, I thought this text teaches that Saul turned to God, kind of. Verse six, it says he inquired of the Lord. This inquiry is like a Hail Mary prayer that maybe you've prayed before, maybe not. You get trouble, your car breaks down in your middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. And you're like, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll, I'll follow you. I'll be in church every Sunday the rest of my life, right? God, if you, if you just help me pay this rent this one time, God, I'll tithe for you every single, you'll get the first, you'll get the best. I'll go to small group. God, if you just save me, if you like the Hail Mary prayer. And then God delivers. He might choose to, he might not to. And then you're like, what? You haven't been to church in like years. You're saying whatever you need to say to God, I just need hope. So where do you actually turn? You turn to God. What happened here is that God did not respond to Saul. He rejected Saul because Saul had already rejected him. 
We see that in the earlier chapters when it says in verse 15 of chapter, chapter 15, 23 of 1 Samuel, for the rebellion is as the sin of divination. Isn't that interesting that Saul's about, it's foreshadowing. Saul's about to encounter the sin of divination himself. The presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. This is Samuel to Saul when Samuel was alive. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has also rejected you from being king. Now I want you to hear this very, very clearly. The God's word teaches unashamedly that when we seek the Lord with all of our hearts, we will find the Lord. That no matter how great your sin is, where you've been, what you've done, if you're a mass murderer, if you committed grand larceny, if you in this moment say, God, I am a sinner in need of a savior help, he will hear you, he will heal you, and he will forgive you. And I would ask that you would turn right now. God transforms. The problem is, is that Saul's heart was never authentic. He never repented, genuinely. He said some words with his lips, but his hearts were still far from God. God, oh, David, forgive me, I've sinned. That was just lip service. How many times have you said, oh, please forgive me, but really in your heart, what you're saying, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that this is creating trouble for you or for me. What can I say to, uh, to get me out of this situation? That is not genuine biblical heart level repentance. Because Saul had rejected God, God rejected him. 1 Peter 5 says very clearly that God will always lift up and exalt the humble in his time, but he will oppose the proud. Saul was proud. I don't want God opposing me, do you? Where in your life are you so prideful that you're relying on yourself and not your Savior? God will oppose you. That's not me saying that. That's his word saying that. Read the book of Proverbs. See what happens to a fool. Saul was a fool. If Saul had genuinely turned to God in a heart of brokenness and true repentance, God would have saved him in that moment, his life. He, he, he might, the consequences of his actions might have earthly death, but in his heart, he would have had peace. We see that with Rahab. We see that with Saul in the New Testament who became Paul. Like when there is a genuine heart turn, everything changes. Zacchaeus, the thief on the cross next to Jesus. In that moment, it's never too late. It's never too late to turn to God authentically. He had a huge heart issue, unrepented sin and pride. Do you? A repentance that does not change the way that you live life will not change the way that you experience death. A true repentance says, I'm not perfect, but I am authentically pursuing God. That I am turning away from my sin and turning to God. The old is done. The old has gone. I don't want to be that person anymore. I still might slip up. I still might step back, but I am going to get up, fall on the grace of God and keep pursuing God out of a heart. See the difference there? Saul never pursued God. He tried to get God to bail him out when he screwed up, but it was always motivated from a heart that had Saul at the center of his heart. Proverbs 16, 25 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way to death. That is Saul. Is that you? Friends, signs of true repentance are one being broken by the reality of your sin broken that you have hurt the God that you love vertically and hurting others around you. Because all sin has consequences. The collateral damage of sin on those around you is horrendous, isn't it? The shrapnel of sin where it hits an innocent bystander there or here is horrible. 
two, you actually take ownership of your sin, genuinely and authentically, not in lip service, but in heart service. That leads to three, a confession. Oh God, before you I have sinned. You want to know what confession looks like? Read Psalm 51. Read David's confession after he sins against Bathsheba. That is authentic repentance. And that results in a change of action. That God, I'm not, I'm going to turn from this and I'm going to pursue you over. I'm not just, it's not, repentance is not just turning from sin. It's turning to your savior. I want to be more like Jesus and I am willing to do whatever it takes. There is no price too high because Jesus is preeminent. For the sake of Christ, I will cut up my credit card. For the sake of Christ, I will get out of this unhealthy relationship. For the sake of Christ, I will stop cheating on my spouse. For the sake of Christ, I'll stop sleeping with a person that is not my spouse. For the sake of Christ, I will get help with my anger. For the sake of Christ, right? I will get rid of my laptop if I can't go, control where I go. For the sake of Christ, I will change my behavior through the power of Christ. I can't do it myself. I'll get help. Where do you need to do that? Because fifthly, the sign of true repentance is a desire for restoration and restitution. Because I want to be restored vertically first with God and horizontally with others. And then restitution means I want to make it right. Like Zacchaeus, so broken by my sin of my extortion that I want to not just make it right financially, I want to go above and beyond. Not because I have to, because I want to. Because I want, to, I want you to know I screwed up, I messed up, and I want to love you this way. Where do you need to do that in your life right now? You see, that wasn't Saul right here. And what happens briefly is this, is that Saul then, he reverts. He had kicked the mediums out, but then in his crisis, he turns back to culture. I need help. I'm going to run to what I know is wrong. I'm going to run, so wrong that I already made a law against it. So wrong that the text says, I'm going to just describe it. You can read for it later. He disguises himself and the medium initially won't talk to him because do you know what Saul's done? Saul's like, yeah, I kind of do. I'm kind of him. He didn't really say that. But if, 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 if I am caught interacting with you, I could die. And Saul's like, it'll be okay. Trust me. I know a guy. I want you to do this. So the medium's finally like, okay. I want you to call up the dead spirit of Samuel. And she's like, what? And then she does it. And actually Samuel appears and the text will show the reality that she is as shocked as anybody that Samuel appears. Why did that happen? Because God allowed it to happen. God can do anything. Samuel appears and Saul's like, help! We'll get 15 of chapter 28, verse 15. Samuel said to Saul, this is a dead spirit of Saul, this is from Samuel to Saul, why have you disturbed me? He's like, I was chilling by bringing me up. Saul said, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me. And he answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. God does what he says. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give you Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. Translation, you're going to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also over into the hand of the Philistines. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he had eaten nothing all day and night. See this amazing contrast. One, the reality and the, the huge impact of sin. Saul sins. The kingdom was ripped out of his hands. He was going to die. His sons were going to die. 
And the whole nation of Israel was going to be defeated in war by the Philistines because of one man's sin. Wow. That doesn't happen every time you sin, but the consequences of sin, take that. Understand that what you do matters. Every choice you make matters to God or away from God. And sin has consequences. Praise God for the grace of God. Amen. Praise God for the cross. And look at what happens. So Samuel's like, of course this happens. I already told you it was going to happen because you disobeyed God. And you haven't turned back to God. God does what he says. Hell is real, friends. If you have not turned to God ever authentically, you will spend eternity in the destruction of hell apart from him. I would beg you and I would implore you with all that I have to turn to him today because I can't tell you the reality and the brevity of life. I've just lived that recently. Life is short. Turn to God today, please. Not for me, but for you. And ultimately for him. Come back. And look at what happened. Saul disregarded his order that he had made. Because when you're not walking with the Lord, the commitments and the convictions that you have are as flimsy as some fake sunglasses you might purchase on the boardwalk at Ocean City. But when it got tough, he disregarded his stated, written convictions because they weren't heart level. He had kicked the mediums out, but he turns to one himself because he's desperate. In his desperation, he turned to the world for hope. And you know where it led to him? Nowhere good. Verse 20, he was still filled with fear and he had even less strength in him. The world will not fill you. It will deplete you. When you turn to the world for help and for hope and to deliverance, it will eat you alive. Just like it's eating Saul, literally alive right here. Where are you looking for your hope? He turned away from God and that led to his path of destruction. He was around God. He was given a position by God. He was the king over the nation of God. Yet he personally did not know God. He had Samuel, a direct mouthpiece of God, advising him. And he still turned away from God. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful among men. Where's your heart right now? Will you turn to God like David? David wasn't perfect, but he's known as a man after God's own heart because he was pursuing. When he messed up, and he messed up big often, he had authentic repentance and turned to God. Or are you going to be like Saul? You have all the knowledge. You've been in the house of God a lot. You've spoken with the prophets of God. You're amongst the people of God, yet you ignore and you neglect and you turn from a personal relationship with God. Which are you right now? And maybe you committed it, came into a personal relationship with God back in the day, or maybe recently, but you are not walking with the Lord right now. You've turned from that and you've turned to the world. Turn back today. The consequences of sin are astronomical and they're real. Would you bow your heads with me right now, please? In this moment, as Chris is going to continue to play for a moment, I just want to ask you right now, in the, in the difficulty of life or the sieges and the situations you're walking through, are you turning to God? He is the maker of heaven and earth. He provides your help. He will not let your foot slip. I don't know the why. I don't know the how. But all we need to know right now is the who. Jesus Christ. 
He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is our savior. And he is our strength. In the next 30 seconds or so, I'm going to ask for it to be quiet. I'm going to ask that you would make this choice. That you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you right now. We need to follow the Holy Spirit, not the world, not, not the circle. We need to follow God's man, not the world's man. Ask him to reveal to you in the, what you're walking through right now, the areas of your life that you're not turning to him. And I would ask that you genuinely repent and I would ask that you would turn to him. And maybe today you're making a choice for the first time in your life to not just with lip service, Saul gave a lot of lip service, but with heart, a genuine, authentic turn to God. So that God, I don't understand all the things, but I just know this. I want you as my main thing. Forgive me. I want you as my Lord and Savior and I submit and surrender to you and help me along this journey. I'm not going to get it right every day, but I want to strive after you and be covered by your grace, knowing that your love is enough and that your forgiveness is unending as I confess my sins genuinely to you. Or maybe this time in the quiet in a second, it's just your time to cry out to God in your crisis, to cling his character, to quiet the noise of the external circumstances and in your high or your low, whatever your circumstance to claim the character of God in an authentic and real way. David in verse 24 of chapter 26 said, God, this I know that you will be my deliverance from all adversity, from all situations, from all circumstances. And maybe that needs to be the cry of your heart right now. God, help me to see your character and to feel your presence even when I think it's quiet. God, I trust that you're still there, but make yourself known to me. God, I want to choose to see you. I want to follow you. Show me the way, God. Hold me. Don't let me slip, God. I feel myself slipping. Don't let me. Psalm 121 says, you will not let me slip. God, I need you. In a heart of humility, cry out in desperation. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's Jeremiah 29. In this moment right now, and I will close it in prayer, would you seek God with all of your heart? Father, I just sense you working. I don't know the details. I just know you're working in hearts right now. And I pray that you would work. There's a lot of hard, there's a lot of hurt that many of us are carrying this morning. But in you, we have hope. And God, in this moment and in the moments to come and in the days and the weeks to come, help us to turn our eyes towards you, to turn our hearts towards you, the maker and the creator of earth, heaven and earth, where does my help come from? It comes from you, God. Help. Help, God. Help. Hear us, oh God. And work in whatever ways you would for your glory, oh God. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we embrace our weakness, knowing full well that your grace is sufficient this morning and it will be sufficient tomorrow and the next day. And that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So right now we boast in the reality of our need for dependency on you. And we claim your sovereignty in every moment of adversity that we are walking through, God. 
because you are good even when life isn't. And God, in every trial and in every trouble, help us to turn to you and experience a deliverance internally that you promise, even if externally the storm still rages and the waves still crash. You will hold us fast. Thank you for covering us in the shadow of your wings. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.